We are jumping into a new uh, series today, as I mentioned last week. Uh, we're going to do a series called Across the Spectrum, and basically we're going to take four controversial topics, and we're going to take each one and talk about uh, what are the different ways that Christians look at each of these, these topics. In Matthew 22, it says, And we're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And we've been dealing a lot lately in our sermon series about heart issues and emotional issues. And uh, so we're going to take four weeks and just focus in on the mind. And so uh, we're going to do some thinking here. It's going to be a lot of information. And I'm going to have to talk quick because we got a lot to cover today. Uh, but we're going to focus in on the mind for four weeks and then uh, we'll give a you a break in that area. <laughs> Whenever we talk about theology, because we're going to get into some theology today, I always throw up this image because it's helpful to understand how to talk about theology. Because a lot of people have no idea how to talk about theology and they end up in arguments and they split and they create another church or whatever. Um, some people get way too angry over it because uh, they don't understand how to talk about theology. And this is the way I think we should talk about theology and that is to see it in concentric circles. So in the center is God. And it is through God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit where we get our identity. Our value and worth is found in God. Our life is found in God. And so if someone attacks our opinions or attacks our doctrine, uh, we don't have to get angry. Uh, we don't have to freak out because we know that our value and worth is not in our opinions, but it, it is in God. And so it's important when we talk about theology, especially different views of theology, that you make sure your identity is where it should be and that is in God. And so within theology, we have concentric circles. We have God, and then what we might call dogma, and that's not a mother dog, that is, uh, basically, the, the essentials of the faith, those are the things that all Christians agree on. Uh, we sang a song about, you know, we believe. Those are the things that all Christians uh, agree on, the inspiration of scripture, the triune God, those kinds of things. And then we have the realm of doctrine. And this would be those things that separate different denominations, separate different kinds of Christians or groups of Christians. These are the kind of things that Christians disagree on. And sometimes I think they get a little too upset about these things, but they should be discussed. Theological, uh, theological conversations are really helpful and good, and they're awesome to have. Uh, but just don't freak out when you have them. And then we have our opinion. Uh, those are the things that the Bible's not very clear on at all, gray issues. And then we all have our little opinions on it. So, when we talk about creation today, we're in the realm of doctrine. We're not talking dogma, we're in the realm of doctrine. That is the different ways different Christians or different denominations look at the topic of creation. Uh, unity is really important. And one of the reasons I do this kind of series now and then is because I believe that unity in the church is incredibly important. And that sometimes because our identity ends up in our opinions, or our little doctrinal differences of, of opinions that we split far too easy. And we're not mature in having good conversations. I mean, Jesus said in John 17, I have given them the glory you gave me. That God actually gave us the same glory he gave to Jesus, which is incredible. Now, why would he do that? It's <laughs> such a cool thing. It says, so that... Uh, they may be one as we are one. He gave us the glory he gave Jesus so that we might be unified. Yeah. 
And so us as Christians, we just throw that out the window because we meet someone who disagrees with us and we you know, run them over with a bus and then start another church or something like that. Uh, he says, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. That our unity is actually to be a testimony to the world of the reality of God and God's love. Now, unity doesn't mean we all have to agree. Uh, unity means that we can have mature discussions over differences in theology and still love each other and still be a part of the same church. And that's why I love this church, because we got all kinds of different folks here. we got lots of different opinions and doctrinal differences, but we love each other, and we want to work together and have mature conversations. And so that's what we're dealing with today. We are going to look at uh, five different views of creation. We're going to try to shove them into this portion of time here. Uh, there are actually about 12 views within Christianity, but I kind of boiled them down into five, and we're going to look at the young earth view, the old earth view, rest restoration view, uh, cosmic temple view, and a theistic evolution view. All five of these views are held by Christians who love Jesus, who believe in the inspiration of scripture, who believe in the triune God, who believe in the essentials of the faith. Again, this is in the realm of, of, of doctrinal differences. Now, because there's five here, I, there's just, it's impossible for me to cover these in depth. I'm just going to do a little iceberg touch on each, each of these. But my hope is that you'll be like, oh, I didn't realize that Christians held that view. Or, you know, I really want to study more. Or I actually don't know what I think. And to help you spur on discussion, to help you uh, dive into theology a little bit more in terms of discussing it with people or research online. Now, the one thing that all Christians do agree on the dogma around this issue is this, that all the Christians agree that God is the creator and designer of this universe. And the Bible is very clear on this in Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that God is the creator. Proverbs 3.19 says, by wisdom, the Lord founded the earth. By understanding, he created the heavens. And so this is something that all Christians agree on. God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator. He is the designer. He is the architect. He is the one behind creation. Uh, the Bible says that. And the cool thing is, is that science also points, uh, points towards this reality. And uh, just really quickly on this point, a few points of how science points to the reality of God being creator. One is uh, that we live in a very fine-tuned universe. Uh, it, I mean, it's just it, it's a, a literal miracle that life actually exists. And the only way it can exist is, is in this universe that is super, super fine-tuned. If it was just off a little bit either way, a life couldn't exist. Uh, we can look at the, for instance, the expansion rate of the universe. We know the universe is expanding. If the speed was just a little bit quicker or a little bit slower, life would be impossible. In fact, the chance of it being where it is, smart people say, that it would be like standing in outer space and taking a dart and throwing it down to the earth and hitting a target the size of an atom. Uh, that's how finely tuned just the expansion of our universe is. Uh, we can look at the law of gravity. Uh, again, the law of gravity could be uh, anything. In fact, smart people say that the law of gravity could be anywhere between, like if you just picture the ruler that spread out across our 14 billion year wide universe. 
that the law of gravity just lands on a speck on that ruler. And if it was just a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, life would be impossible. And so uh, there are actually, smart people say, because I'm not a scientist, I just go by what these smart people say on this, uh, uh, about 30 of these variables in the universe. And if you just took these two, the chance of these two being where they are for complex life to exist would be like taking an atom in this entire 14 billion year universe, painting it red, and then blindfolding somebody and say, go find it. Uh, to find one atom in this entire universe is the chance of just two of these variables, and there's a lot more. Uh, to, to, and so science, again, points to uh, a creator. Uh, we can also look at the complexity of life. The life is not simple. We are not simple beings. Uh, DNA is not simple. It is very, very complex. I mean, you may uh, think about the complexity of an aircraft. If you uh, were walking through the woods and you came across a giant modern aircraft sitting there, you would never think, wow, look, it just popped into existence for no reason. Uh, you'd never say that because it's complex. You'd realize this has to be designed, this has to be created, there must be a mind behind this because complex things just don't pop into existence. And by the way, we, life, are far, far, far more complex than a modern airplane. In fact, they have found things, and uh, if you're into this kind of topic, you will know about the bacterial flagellum. This uh, super complex uh, piece of machinery that's in the back of a little bacteria. In fact, Dr. Howard Berg, who is a Harvard biologist, says that this is the most efficient machine in the universe. Now, if someone came to you and said, I have the most efficient machine, machine in the universe, you would think there would be someone incredibly smart behind that. That you would have to be the, most, uh, the smartest person in the world to invent the most efficient machine in the universe. And there it is in a bacteria. So again, the idea of these things just popping into existence of no, no cause or no creator makes no more sense at all than, uh, than, than the most efficient machine in the universe just popping into existence, like, or an airplane popping into existence. In fact, this bacterial flagellum has caused many atheists to actually give their lives over to Jesus in the realization that this could not have just happened without a creator. In fact, I show just about a four-minute testimony of a renowned paleontologist, German paleontologist, uh, who became a Christian uh, because of this very bacteria. 2009 marked the bicentennial of Darwin's birth and the 150th anniversary of his landmark book on the origin of species. Around the globe, supporters of Darwin planned a year-long celebration. In Germany, one of the largest Darwin anniversary events took place in the city of Stuttgart at its State Museum of Natural History. The exhibition was directed by German paleontologist Gunther Becklich, one of the museum's curators. We had about 100,000 visitors and the complete exhibition together with a program that was accompanying this uh, exhibition was uh, one of the largest, if not the largest event uh, in the course of the Darwin Year celebrations in Germany. Beckley decided to use the exhibition not just to celebrate Darwin's theory, but to make clear to the public that there was no debate about Darwin's ideas among scientists. In order to refute the growing idea of intelligent design, 
Beckley decided to include a display on the bacterial flagellum. The reason why we selected the flagellum as the poster child to basically expose intelligent design was that the bacterial flagellum has a kind of iconic status. We built a mobile model of the bacterial flagellum and had this animation to show that it could originate naturalistically. The exhibit highlighted the type 3 secretion needle complex as an explanation for how the flagellum could have evolved. In addition to an exhibit about the flagellum, Beckley came up with a display to dramatize for visitors the overwhelming scientific evidence for Darwin's theory. It was a balance with books on it. And the plan was on one side of the balance we would have all the books against evolution, books by creationists, intelligent design proponents. And on the other side of the balance we would have one book, The Origin of Species, but the balance goes down on the side of the one book because this is the real heavy evidence. But the display didn't have quite the result Beckley intended. And I made one big mistake. I read the books on the lightweighted side, the apparent lightweighted side. And what I recognized to my surprise is that the arguments I found in those books were totally different from what I heard either from colleagues or when you watch YouTube videos uh, where the discussion is around intelligent design versus neo-Darwinian evolution. And I had the impression on one side that uh, those people are mistreated, their position is misrepresented, and on the other hand that uh, these arguments are not really receiving an appropriate response and they, they have merit. One of the books Beckley read was Darwin's Black Box. I uh, read Darwin's Black Box where he basically introduces this uh, concept of irreducible complexity. Beckley soon realized that proposed Darwinian explanations for the origin of the flagellum didn't work. The type 3 secretion needle complex was no help because it probably developed after the flagellum. This is a reduced flagellum motor and not a precursor of a flagellum motor. In addition, the suggestion that natural selection could have gradually built a flagellum by co-opting parts from other systems didn't make sense. It is graphically convincing, but if you know the ontogenesis of the, the flagellum motor, then it, it is completely ridiculous. It cannot where you cannot build the flagellum by just adding uh, outside of the cell wall some, some protein elements on it and make the, the flagellum longer and longer. Uh, this kind of scenario doesn't make sense in terms of the ontogenesis of the, the structure. Like Behe, a couple of decades earlier, Beckley began to dig deeper. And so when I read those books on, on intelligent design and, and the books by Mike Behe and, and Bill Damsky and uh, the, the book by S Steve Meyer were not uh, existing then, uh, so um, I thought there is some merit to it and I made contact with uh, some of the representatives of the intelligent design movement. The next thing I found out is that they are much different from what I expected. They are open-minded. They, they are not religious fanatics who try to push a kind of theocratic system onto society uh, under the uh, label of, of, of intelligent design. They are really interested is this neo-Darwinian story really true or is there scientific reason to doubt it? All right, and then uh, just lastly, we won't talk much, it's just about the cosmological argument. And that is this idea that whatever begins to exist 
uh, must have a cause. And because our universe exists, uh, there must be a cause behind it. I mean, you're not sitting here worried and anxious that a, uh, you know, an elephant's going to suddenly appear in your living room back home without you knowing it's going to destroy your house. Um, you're not worried about that because things just don't pop into existence. Uh, an elephant would have to be, be placed there by someone. Uh, and so the idea that this universe, because it began, uh, there has to be someone who started the whole thing. And so you can find lots more on that. But um, Christians agree on this. That the Bible says that God is created, but where Christians disagree is on the question of how it began and started and when. So how and when is where Christians have different opinions when it comes to creation. And so we're going to look at these uh, five views, and again, just going to touch on them. I, I'm not going to even spend much time, uh, actually, I'm not going to be arguing for one or the other. I'm just going to touch on some of the evidence for each, and then um, you can have your discussions, and you can study it on, uh, on your own at home. So the Earth view. Uh, this view is kind of popular among sort of mainstream Christianity. It's not as popular uh, among scholars or scientists who are Christians, but it's quite popular among kind of mainstream Christianity. And that is the young earth view. And that is the earth is not uh, 4.5 billion years old, but less than 10,000 years. And so that's why it's called the young earth view, because they would reject any notion of the earth being billions of years old. And they would say it's 10,000 years or, or less. And, uh, and this view takes a very kind of a rigid, literal approach to Genesis chapter 1. And so if you go to Genesis chapter 1, you will see on day 1... God creates the earth and the light, and then it has this phrase, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Uh, day two, God creates the atmosphere, and then it says there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Uh, day three, God creates the land and plant life, and then it says there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Uh, day four, he creates the sun and the moon, and notice this is done after plant life, and so there's a bit of a discussion there, of course, between the views. Uh, and then again, there's morning, evening, day five, there's fish and birds, morning and evening, day six, man and animals, and there's morning and evening, and day seven was the day of rest. And so they would look at this phrase, morning and evening, and say, uh, that is a, a real literary clue that this is a literal 24-hour day. Um, they will say, other places in the Bible, this phrase, morning and evening, are used to mean a 24-hour day. So we look at for Samuel. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand, meaning a 24-hour period day. So they would take these days as literal. And they'll do a calculation of why it's less than 10,000 years, and it often kind of goes like this. So there are five days, because Adam was made on day six, so there was five days before him. You add that to... They'll take the genealogies in Genesis and the old in, uh, in Genesis and add them up. So they'll say we get about two thousand years, and then we know Abraham lived about four thousand years ago. So they add those all up and they say the Earth is about six to ten thousand years old, depending on if you see gaps in the genealogies or not. So this is the young Earth view. They would also say that God used the creation pattern as an example of our work week. Therefore, again, creation days must be twenty-four hours. Because in Exodus it says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. And so 
he correlates the creation with our work week. So they would say that this means that God created the earth in, in, a, in a work week, if you will. Uh, another point, one of the stronger points is this. Uh, there was no death before the fall of man. Therefore, creation days must have been 24 hours. So in Romans 8, it says, Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. And so uh, they would say that the Bible tells that death came in when Adam and Eve sinned. Therefore, there couldn't be any death before him. Therefore, there couldn't be millions of years of dinosaurs eating each other and, and uh, you know, all the stuff before, because then there would be death before Adam and Eve. That death came in with Adam and Eve, so therefore, animals and man must have been created on the same day. Uh, other views will look at this and say, well, this just means spiritual death, not actual death. Uh, but that's the way the young earth see it. We're also going to ask this question about each view. Uh, how does that view relate to modern science? Uh, so the young earth view in modern science would uh, reject a lot of sort of mainstream modern day science. Again, anything that smells of anything being millions of years or billions of years old, they'd automatically say it's, it's wrong. Uh, they would take all the modern dating methods and they would uh, reject them and say they're inaccurate or there's mistakes. Or, or they might, some of them would say, that, that God created things with the appearance of age. Uh, in other words, when, when Adam came on the earth, on the day God created him, he wasn't a one-year-old baby. Uh, God probably created him with age, probably 44, because that's a great age, right? <laughs> <laughs> but he was, he was maybe one day old, but he looked older. And so they would say the reason sometimes we get billions of years old or millions of years is because God created rocks that, that had the appearance of age, just as Adam was not just one year old, but maybe older. He had the appearance of age. So maybe that's where we get the millions of, of years. But uh, this view would take Genesis 1, again, in the very literal sense, and any modern-day science that doesn't match up with that interpretation, they, they would reject. And they would accept anything that uh, would fit into, into that view. Now, if you want more information on the Young Earth view, probably the biggest figurehead today is Ken Ham. Uh, you can go to answersingenesis.org, and he's all over YouTube as well. He's the guy who big, built the big ark in the States, the life-size ark. You can actually go and walk through it. Uh, but that's the Young Earth view. Now, another view is the Old Earth view, or day-age view. This view is, is uh, definitely more popular than the previous one in terms of scholars and uh, Christians who are scientists. And this is the old earth view. And they would say the word day in Genesis 1 means an age. That's why it's called the day age. Of an unspecified time. The earth is not young, but is as old as science says, maybe uh, 4.5 billion years old. So they would take each day and actually say it's an age. Not a literal 24-hour uh, day. And here's some of their argumentation. Uh, they would say the Hebrew word for day can mean lots of things. Part of the daylight hours, all the daylight hours, 24 hours, or a long period of time. As Dr. Gleason Archer said, all biblical scholars admit that yom, which is day, may be used in a figurative or symbolic manner as well as a literal sense. And in fact, the Bible over about 60 times translates yom in, in, to mean a period of time. And so they will point to some of these verses, like uh, Genesis 2, right into the book of Genesis. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, meaning the period of time during creation. So it's not used in the literal sense. 
or Isaiah uh, 4.2, in that day, young, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, meaning a period of time. And so they will look at this and say, it's not 24 hours, but a big, long period of time. And so day six, when the animals and man were created, there were millions of years when the dinosaurs existed before man was created. Uh, they would also argument, argue for this view by saying, interpreting the creation days as 24-hour periods has difficulties. And they have sort of three lines of thinking. First of all, the sun was not created until day four. The morning and evening were not marked by the sun rising and setting, which is where we get our 24 hours from. Therefore, we cannot take morning and evening literal. Uh, the sun was created day four. We had three days without the sun. And so if we get our 24 hours from the sun, then obviously we can't take morning and evening literally, is one of their argumentation. And they'll point to a verse like this in Psalm 90. A thousand years in your sight are like a day just gone by. And so maybe these days were longer periods of time. Uh, they will point to day three and say day three must have been longer than 24 hours. Because on day three it says this. Uh, then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to the various kinds. And it was so. Uh, the land produced, like past tense, they would say, that's actually growing. Uh, plants bearing seed according to their kind and trees bearing fruit. And they would say, there's no way a plant can grow and bear fruit and bear seeds in a 24-hour period. That takes time. So they'd say uh, day three must have been longer than 24 hours. Uh, their favorite is day six. Uh, they'll point to this one right away. That day six, there's way too much going on, they would say, for this to be a 24-hour period. And I'm not going to read the whole because it's a long section, but here's all the stuff that happens on day six. Uh, God created all the animals and man. Uh, God created the Garden of Eden. And then God brings Adam into the garden. And then while he's in the garden, God creates more trees. God tells Adam he is to work the garden. And they would even argue that maybe Adam did spend time working. Uh, day six, God tells Adam to name all the livestock, animals, and birds. And, and here's their issue. All the livestock, animals, and birds. They would point to the, the ancient Near Eastern people would never name something frivolously. They always looked at the character, and they would spend time trying to figure out what the name of the animal or the name of the person would be. And even if you lessen the species down to maybe 10,000, uh, even if it was really quick, you could never do this in a single day, they would say. But on beyond that, Adam realizes there's no match for him. And then God says to him, it's not good for man to be alone. And so there is the sense that somehow in the midst, Adam was saying, well, where's my match? Now, if you were the first day on the planet with God in existence and all these animals to name, you don't think you would kind of have that sense on the first day. That might take a few days for that to happen at least. Then Adam falls into a deep sleep, and then God does surgery in Adam and makes woman. So they would say, way too much going on in day six for this to be a little 24 hours. But of course, the young earth people have responses to all this. The argument goes back and forth all the way through this and all the different views. Uh, they'd also say that the seventh day of rest is still in progress. So again, these can't be 24-hour days. They look at Hebrews 4. Since the promise of entering his rest still stands, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, the creation rest, God again sent a certain day, sent a certain day calling it today. So they would say, we're still in the seventh day. And if we're still in the seventh day, then we just follow that maybe all those other days uh, are long periods of time as well. But the interesting thing about the seventh day, it doesn't actually have that phrase, morning and evening. 
Um, so what about the old earth view in modern science? Uh, this view, along with most of the other views we are going to look at, are much more open to modern science and much more open to adjusting their interpretation of the Bible according to what modern science has found. This view would talk about things like Proverbs 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky proclaims the work of his hands. In other words, we can find out things about the glory of God from science. Uh, not just the Bible, but we can look to science to find things out about the glory of God. Or Romans 1, his invisible characteristics, his eternal power and divine nature, and it says this, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world because they are understood from the things he has made. So that we can understand things about God from creation. And so they say we can understand things about God from science. And so we shouldn't be too quick to reject science, they would say. That we need to accept science and, uh, and work with, with, with the Bible. And they would uh, point to mistakes perhaps the church has made. Uh, like Galileo, who, the guy who was like, oh, the earth is not the center of the universe. The, the, I think the sun is. <laughs> but the, 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 the church in that day had an interpretation of the Bible that said the earth was the center. Because uh, sometimes we put our interpretation as the authority rather than the Bible. And we think our interpretation is the authority rather than the scriptures. And the church, because of, you know, like the sun stood still in Joshua's day, that obviously the earth is the center of the universe. But then science comes along and says it's not. And the church tells Galilee, who's actually a Christian, by the way, to recant his teachings, and they ordered him to house arrest. <laughs> but Galileo himself said, God is known by nature in his works and by doctrine revealed in his word. And so this view and the other ones would take a much more balanced approach in terms of they still see the Bible as authority, but not their interpretation. That their interpretation of the Bible can be adjusted depending on the truths found, found in science. Now, to get more uh, info on this view, uh, Dr. Hugh Ross is a famous guy behind me. He's an astrophysicist. You can go to his site, reasons.org, or the Discovery Institute with the, the German scholar we saw earlier. He, he's kind of a part of the, the Discovery Institute, the old earth theory. Now, another view is the restoration, the gap theory. This view is not very popular, so I don't even know why I put it in here, but I did. Uh, it's just because it's kind of weird. It's kind of cool. Uh, they would say... The original creation of Genesis 1-1 became corrupted through demonic forces and was judged. The rest of Genesis 1 and 2 describe God's restoration of the earth. And so they would say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and he made it beautiful and wonderful, and then there's this rebellion. Satan and demons came down, and, and this is when the dinosaurs lived, and, and everything was havoc, and the Satan and demons wrecked everything, and, and the dinosaurs died out, and so they put all the millions of years... Uh, in that hole. And then it says, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and then God creates again the earth. He recreates it. And uh, they got verses too, of course. Uh, they will point to creation passages that describe battle, like you crushed Rahab in the same frame as you founded the world and all that is in it. So they would say there's this, somehow this battle during creation. Uh, they will point to Isaiah 45, where it says that God did not create the earth to be empty. But they would say in Genesis 2, the earth was empty. If God didn't create it, then why was it empty? Must be because there was some sort of battle or, or God had to judge it. So that's that view. Not that popular, but uh, it's out there. Now, uh, next view is the literary framework in cosmic temple view. Again, this view would be popular among scholars, popular amongst uh, Christians who are scientists. And it says this. 
Genesis 1 and 2 are not to be read through our modern scientific lens, but through the lens of the people of the ancient Near East. This text is not about science, but about theology. There is nothing in this text about how or when God created the earth. And so they look at everybody arguing over, you know, how does the Bible win and how old is it? They would say that's not in there. And the text is not about uh, science. It's about, it's about theology, they would say. Because the reality is, I mean, if this book was written by Moses, that was a really long time ago, like 3,500 years ago. I mean, you can go back to people who lived 100 years ago or 500 years ago, and you realize they're different. They think differently. They have a completely different cultural context. But we're talking 3,500 years ago. And uh, they would point out that sometimes we make the mistake of the Bible as we open this book, and we say, God, would you speak to me? Would you show me and help me in my day? Which is a good thing to do. But if you take any class on hermeneutics, uh, understanding the scriptures, they would always say the first place you start is not with today, not with our eyes looking in, but you start with the eyes of the people it was written to, the eyes of the authors. They would always say you start with what did it mean to the original audience? But that's where you start the question. You don't start it with modern science. You don't start it with 21st century thinking. You start it with the people who were there in that day. And they would argue that people in that day were not thinking about science. They were not thinking about how and when the earth was created. They had a, a completely different view of things. Uh, John Walton, Old Testament scholar, puts it this way. The language is not the only aspect that needs to be translated. Language assumes a culture, operates in a culture, serves as a culture, and is designed to communicate into the framework of a culture. Consequently, when we read a text written in another language and addressed to another culture, we must translate the culture as well as the language if we hope to understand the text fully. As complicated as translating a foreign language can be, translating a foreign culture is infinitely more difficult. The minute anyone, professional or amateur, attempts to translate the culture, we run the risk of making the text communicate something it never intended. Rather than translating the culture then, we need to try to enter the culture. And so they will talk about how the culture was not a culture that thought about how and when, or not a culture that talked about science. They were living in a culture that saw like the stars and the sun and the moon as gods, and the rain as gods, that, that they weren't thinking of a material kind of universe. They thought it was all gods. It was like this kingdom that they were, it was, it was, it was all these gods. And so as one person who holds this view says, the narrative's concern is not scientific or historical, but wishes clearly to establish that it is God who has created all and has dominion over all, including the seas, the sun, and the moon. In other words, because all the cultures around saw the sun as gods, the stars gods, the rain as gods, there's a god behind all these things, that this author, author comes in, and if you really want to get funky, you realize the Genesis text actually mirrors a lot of the ancient Near Eastern texts from other cultures that he came in as, as kind of almost an evangelistic tool, if you will, saying, no, the sun is not a god, the rain isn't a god, there is a god, and he actually is above those things because he created them. And so they would see this whole passage as a, as a bit more of a, in a poetic sense. Uh, some would see this as a, as a, as a temple text. Uh, in Genesis 2, it says this, 
On the seventh day, God had finished his installing in there. <laughs> All right. We can do it. We can do it. On the seventh day, God had finished his, his work of creation. So he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his creation work. Now, those Old Testament scholars who hold this view would say when someone in that culture heard this view, they would immediately respond, oh, it's a temple text. This is about a temple. And we would say, what? what is, there's temple not even written in there. Uh, but they would argue this clearly is a temple text. In other words, in their thinking, again, you've got to go back to their culture, their thinking was temples, that's where gods rest. That's why they always create temples for their gods, because they want their god to rest in the temple. And so they would say that God here is building his temple, and the earth is his temple. And he has invited humans and mankind into his temple, and, uh, and so they would call this a temple text. And, and they would argue that this is how the ancients would have seen it. This has nothing to do with how or when the earth was created, but it has everything to do with theology. And they would say that this is actually the literal way of reading the text. That it's not young earth or old earth. The literal way of reading the text is this, because this is what it would have meant to the early folks. And if you want more information on this view, you can grab uh, John Walton's book called The Lost World of Genesis 1. He's got lots of talks on uh, YouTube. A good one is just reading Genesis with Ancient Eyes by John Walton. Now, last one is a view of theistic evolution. And sometimes this view comes out of the previous one. A lot of people who hold the previous one would have this or an old earth view. Uh, there are some young earthers who might even hold to the previous view, but still take it as 24 hours. Um, that they would say again that Genesis 1 and 2 are not to be read through our modern scientific lens but through the lens of the people of the ancient Near East. This text is not about science, but about theology. There's nothing in this text about how or when God created the earth. Therefore, one can accept most of what mainstream science says about evolution, but with the reality that God is the causal agent, God guided and planned the evolutionary process. In other words, God is behind the whole thing. He's the one who started the universe. He's the one who helped evolution along. Uh, but God is the causal agent. And uh, sometimes Christians kind of think this is just heresy. Uh, but a lot of your favorite people believe in this. Uh, I mean, just some of the names. N.T. Wright, Tim Keller, John Orberg, Andy Crouch, Alistair McGrath, Scott McKnight. Lots and lots of scientists who are Christians, lots and lots of scholars will actually hold to uh, theistic evolution. And so I would put it in the doctrine, and I don't think this is something to... Uh, good conversation's over, but not something to split over. Um, Dr. Francis Collin, who was actually the former director of the Genode Project, super uber smart guy, who's a theistic evolutionist, says this, I have led a consortium of scientists to read out the 3.1 billion letters of the human, human genome, our own DNA instruction book. As a believer, I see DNA the information molecule of all living things as God's language, and the elegance and complexity of our own body and the rest of nature as a reflection of God's plan. But he would say that God created the world in an evolutionary process, but God is the one who was guiding the process, stepping in uh, perhaps when, when, when need be. And they will point to things like the, the Cambrian explosion, of why you have to reject sort of the Darwinian evolution and why, if you believe that, to hold on to a theistic evolution. Uh, that 541 million years ago, 
there is this sudden appearance in the fossil record of many kinds of complex animals. All of a sudden, there's boom, all these complex animals, and they would say that, that is just impossible to explain through a Darwinian evolution. But it is possible if there's a God. And so Stephen Meyer uh, says the Cambrian explosion was not just an explosion of new animal forms, it was necessarily an explosion of information, of genetic information, and higher forms of information that we now call epigenetic or, or ontogenetic information. To build an animal requires a lot of instruction, a lot of information, and the origin of that information is the central problem of the modern evolutionary theory. That, to, just to believe that everything came out of nothing, uh, with no reason or no cause, takes a lot of faith. And these people say it takes a lot left <laughs> faith, if you will, if you believe a creator is behind it. Now, some people will say, well, uh, you know, why would God take billions and millions of years to do it? And you know, why would you have this theistic evolution? You're just compromising, whatever. But they would say, actually, this is more glorifying to God. And they would point to something like, again, an airplane we could look at. Again, if you walk through the woods and uh, you saw an airplane, you would realize that there would be some smart people behind building that airplane. And you realize that it must took a lot of workers to build that airplane, and they had to be a very technical process of building that airplane. And that is amazing. That is cool. But imagine if an engineer built an airplane that built itself. That's what they'd say. Or you take a chair. If a carpenter you know, built a chair, it's pretty cool when a carpenter can build a chair, but imagine if a carpenter could build a chair that could build itself. And so they would say, God is infinitely more smart than we are. He can actually build a world that builds itself. That he didn't just have to just create it. He built a world that built itself. It's, it's kind of some of their, their thinking along these lines. And so the question again, theistic evolution of science, well, obviously, much more accepting. Uh, John Ortberg, who's a famous author, probably most of you know, who's a theistic evolutionist, uh, says, I have seen too many young people in too many churches exposed to bad science, shoddy thinking, false claims, and a misguided idea, maybe well-intended but misguided, that somebody was defending the Bible when what they were really defending was a wrong interpretation of the Bible. Then I've watched when very often those really bright young people go off and pursue education, go to college, begin to read and discover that they were misinformed. Then they think they have to choose between the Bible and truth. You don't. Uh, or Timothy Keller, another person, probably most of you know him, theistic uh, evolutionist, would say many people today, both secular and Christian, wants to believe that science and religion cannot live together. Not only is this untrue, but we believe that a thoughtful dialogue between science and faith is essential for engaging the hearts and minds of individuals today. And if you want more information on this view, you can go to Dr. Francis Collins, who's an evangelical Christian, but a theistic evolution. He runs a site called BioLogos, and lots of scientists, uh, Christian science, are a part of, of that group. But in the end, uh, we agree that God is a creator. And in the end, this is what gives us hope and gives us strength because we realize if God could create this universe, however he did it, this universe that is 14 billion light years big, and that life is so completely complex, and that he created the most efficient motor in the universe, and that is our God, then how does it relate to what you're struggling with today? How does it relate to that problem you have today when you're dealing with a God who loves you more than you could ever imagine, yet is absolutely, uh, he's just able to do anything and everything? In fact, this idea of God being creator and our problems 
is found in Isaiah 40. And we'll finish with this. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asked the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. Oh, Jacob, or how Junction Church, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? Oh, Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will not uh, they will walk and not faint. I mean, there is strength to be found in God. There's a strength to be found in a relationship with Him. So trust Him. Trust Him. He is the creator. He is infinitely more smart than we are. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows the solution to your problem. He knows how to guide you in this life. And so look to Him. Worship Him. Serve Him. Love Him. Get to know the Father. With that, we are going to finish with communion today. Thanks for hanging in through all that. Awesome. You, can, uh, you can come back next week. Next week, uh, we're tackling another one. We are going to look at uh, the different views that Christians take on Old Testament violence. And if you've read through the Old Testament and you have any kind of heart of love, you will realize there's a struggle. Uh, between how God seems to reveal himself and how he tells the Israelites to, to wipe out cities and, and how do you reconcile that with Jesus who died on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. How do you reconcile that with Jesus who said, love your enemies? Uh, big question. Well, not all Christians agree on the answer. So next week we're going to be looking at that. Let's invite the worship team forward. We're going to finish our service in worship and coming to this table. And uh, we do this, if you're new to this church and you're wondering what this is, it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed before he was crucified that he had this meal with his disciples in the upper room. And during that meal, he took a loaf of bread and after giving thanks, he broke that bread and said, this is my body given for you. Take this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup of wine and said, this is my blood. Take this in remembrance of me. Uh, for whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. And so this is a, this is a meal. Uh, this is something we come to, and it reminds us of our intimacy with God. Back in this culture, again, you always go back to what did it mean to the original culture? And to the original culture, meals were really important. They meant friendship. They meant intimacy. They meant uh, care. And, and God is inviting you to this table because he loves you. And he wants to know you better. And he wants to, to be intimate with you. We also come to this table to remember how amazing his love is for us by Jesus dying for us on the cross. And so we come to this table to spend time in his presence. And as we always know, that God's presence transforms us. 
And so if you have worries, you have burdens, come to this table and leave them at the feet of God. And so we welcome you to this table. And uh, maybe if I can get someone to go grab the Sunday school kids, they want to come and join in as well. And you come to this table, Jesus says, you come here, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, this, this table means I, I love you, Jesus, and I, I want more of you. And during this time as well, we're going to have prayer right over here. If you have any uh, prayer concerns, maybe things like Connie, you've been praying on your own for a long time and there hasn't been a breakthrough. Sometimes that breakthrough happens when you let go of your pride and you say, I need help praying. I need people to come along and pray with me. Maybe you need healing. Maybe you need support. Maybe you need strength. Uh, maybe you just need a touch of God in your life and they'd be happy to pray with you over here. So at any time, we welcome you to come to this table. You can take the crackers, which are gluten-free, and you can take the cup just on your own time during our song. So let's stand and worship and take part.